1: We want to talk tech. We Welcome went to, to the Bloomberg Roundtable Markets Podcast, Tech Xfinity, alongside my host, host Matt, Matt Miller.
2: Miller. Every business day, we tech. bring you interviews you know, from CEOs, tech. Tech. Pros you know, from from CEOs tech. market tech. pros,
3: and, that's and that's Bloomberg what experts. Well, we right? don't all know with essential market news. That's
2: exactly
3: what I would say. That's exactly what I would say. Or wherever you listen to podcasts, and at Bloomberg.com, sing big
1: cricket fan covers all things technology. Yeah, but I doubt Dan
3: Ives is much of a cricket. You don't think so? Fan. I'm
1: just well. He went. He went to state college pennsylvania which is no mean feat by the way from new york to watch wrestling yeah. penn state wrestling now granted they're one of the best in the country but dan ives he covers technology uh for wed Bush securities uh and mandeep singh here from bloomberg intelligence so they're in our bloomberg interactive broker studio dan let's start with you tesla I, I follow you on twitter and by the way folks follow dan ives on twitter uh, he's got a good twitter game there um and you're not too happy with him sticking around uh, at Twitter. Elon Musk. To Elon Musk. So right. Tesla.
3: So the problem is uh, Elon Musk is supposed to run Tesla, right? But he's obsessed with Twitter to the point where he like changes the algorithms so that we all have to read all of his tweets. He said he was going to pick someone else, stand down before Christmas. And now it's like the end of this year, <laughs> maybe beginning of 2024. Dan, what is the deal with your dog?
4: Yeah. I mean, look, the goalposts for Musk, as we've seen before, continue to get pushed out. And I think when it comes to Twitter, you know, clearly that's been less of an overhang the last few months. But I think investors want to see Musk just laser focused on Tesla, on SpaceX and some of those. Any kind things. of focus. Doesn't have to be a laser. Just a little bit of focus on <laughs> Tesla, right? <laughs> and it was. And I think what we've seen the last few months, like part of why Tesla stocks don't where it has it. They made strategic decisions in terms of the price cuts, which have been massive home run successes. But I think when you look at the Twitter. They cut I mean, prices and they raise prices. What are they doing over there? Look, I think they're trying to find the equilibrium on supply and demand. I mean, I think in China. By throwing spaghetti at the wall? I mean, come on, man. It's Tesla. Why don't you just make a decision and stick to it? Cause I, Tesla. I,
1: there's
3: so many questions I have. I'm so glad you came in here, Dan. And it's great, it's great to be here. I was listening to Ross Gerber last night. He was on uh, Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser. And he, I think he made a, gr- a ton of great points without being a jerk, you know, I mean, he doesn't want to offend Elon, but he is a big shareholder who's trying to get a board seat right now. And um, he was saying, we got to rein this guy in. We got to get him back uh, to Tesla and we need a succession plan, right? Because if anything happens to Elon Musk, talk about key man risk. He has nobody in place. Kimball's not going to come and run it, right?
4: Look, I think the bigger thing, as Ross has talked about, is really more as competition grows, you know, in the U.S. and globally, you just want to make sure that strategically they're both defensive and offensively positioned. And I think for Musk, you know, as investors, that's a huge part of the premium. We saw what happened with the Twitter situation, you know, call it from October to December, big part of that was the, the Twitter overhang. But that's why you need sure that strategy. I mean, Must is going to talk. We'll be there in Austin, March first. The big plan. So I think investors are trying to see what is that. What does that mean about production in the future? So,
1: all right. So good. I mean, there's a ton of tech news out there. We could just spend all day on this stuff. The one that got my attention is Airbnb. I've used it once, and it was because it was a Bloomberg-sponsored Airbnb. I'm still in the hotel mode, man. D, talk to me about Airbnb, their business. I mean, I mean, the stock had great number, Stock up 12.4% today.
5: Well, and uh, talking about raising prices, this is a company that has benefited from you know pent-up travel demand, price increases they don't have to take down prices to drive demand and uh, look it's a very robust business model out of all the marketplace companies you you know include uber Lyft, doordash this is the model that generates over twenty-five percent EBITDA margins. Nice, and and that is what investors like. It can convert, you know, free cash flow uh, on a ten billion dollar run rate. You've got two billion in free cash flow every year. Now, granted, they are going to run into tougher comps because they did very well during the pandemic. Well, guess what? Coming out of the pandemic, they did even better. And so now they are running into uh, tougher comps, even though they have the category leadership in alternative accommodations, and they are adding users like you, and they will continue to do that. No, no, no,
3: no. they're not adding.
5: (laughs) Paul Sweeney (laughs) is
3: not an alternative accommodations guy. I'm a Four Seasons
1: guy, but I did stay at a Verbo condo out in Vail last week, but that's only because I didn't make the reservation. Somebody- Well, how was it? Awesome. Fantastic. But that's just
3: because Vail was amazing. Yes. Right? Yeah.
1: yeah. But I mean, are, are you guys like Airbnb people or are you traditional? I hotel have
3: people? gone uh, both ways in terms nice. of accommodations. Sure. And um, yeah, I don't really, I'm like you though. I, I would prefer to stay at like the Bayerische Hof. I don't need, <laughs> uh, I don't need to stay in somebody else's apartment. But there are a lot of situations where people have some sick condos that they're they're only investing in to do Airbnb or Verbo. Is Airbnb, who owns Verbo?
5: Verbo is owned by Expedia ah okay. and, and look they have competition but the repeat rates in that 18 to 34 year old cohort the gen yep, z that's users my, that's what my kids that all is where airbnb do. is really hitting off and and they continue to do very well the repeat transactions that too they don't have to spend much on sales and marketing the google marketing spend for airbnb is the least out of all the otas so it's that's why you see that high leverage in the business model
1: my my daughter travels the world, nothing but Airbnb. I don't know how she does it. Anyway, Dan, what's your best idea I'm out not there? She does it I mean, twenty twenty two dad's credit card. <laughs> no, they are off the dole. <laughs> they are off the dole. I was very good for the first uh, you know x number of years. All right, so Dan, what's your best idea that you're talking to clients about the, these days?
4: Well, I mean, look, tech as we've talked about, it's as under owned mm-hmm. as either going to the year since two thousand nine. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, look, it it goes back to all the family
3: offices sell off, right? In the 13Fs.
4: The New York City cab driver was bearish on tech coming into this year, (laughs) and that's why, in my opinion, I still look at names like Microsoft. I look at names like Salesforce, which is one where I think activism puts a floor in it. I think there's a huge some of the parts that you could see significant movement there, and our top pick continues to be Apple. I think it will again regain that three trillion mark cap.
3: Are we ever going to get an Apple car? Is this ever gonna happen?
4: Look, I think the big thing now is you're talking about with this AI arms race, Game of Thrones, Chad GPT, Microsoft, Google, the disaster last week with Bard, Apple, they're gonna come out, we believe, this summer, you know, with significant AI functionality. But it all is leading, and German's talked about this. You know, we believe the car, it's a matter of when, not if that comes out, uh, two thousand twenty six. What are what are they gonna do
3: with their uh, AI product? We've had Siri for more than a decade, right? And she's not very smart. Oh, that's um, not nice. Well, I don't know if she's intended to be as smart as like an AI chat bot, um, but does that mean Siri's going to be able to do stuff beyond, you know, say, shall I Google that for you? <laughs>
4: Well, I think look, they've been spending we believe eight to ten billion on AI, and they have something that no other company in the world has. It's two billion, and that's the install base. So I think when it comes to AI, this is something I think Cupertino is extremely focused on, and it just goes back to many have thought innovations in rearview mirror. Yet again, Cook and Apple, you know, proved the naysayers wrong.
3: Man, what are the biggest AI bets right now? I mean, it's been so huge in the news. Dan talks about the cab driver negative on tech but has got to be positive on chat gpt right i mean everybody's tried this thing
5: i think there is that hype aspect around chat gpt but at the same time you can't take google or alphabet out of the equation i mean i know their disaster it was a disaster the bard demo but look, this company still is the leader when it comes to the data. The number of apps that have over a billion dollar a billion users, you know. So they have almost five or six of their apps that have over a billion users has a lot of proprietary data. I mean, how can you be negative on Alphabet if you're positive on ChatGPT? They but, have a monopoly yeah. in search.
3: So, I mean, and, and, yeah, you, who doesn't want a monopoly?
5: <laughs> and and look, I, I think, I mean, government. there talks about incremental, you know, negative in terms of Bing
4: taking some share. But I still think Google is the powerhouse when yeah, it comes to think, that. And I think Google, learned from their Cadishack moment last week <laughs> that, that ultimately to improve on the AI functionality. But it just shows. That's why Amazon and Jassy – Apple, they're not rushing anything out, but no doubt Nadella popping the champagne in terms of chat GBT. Hey, Mandip, just real quickly, um, Meta, Google, digital advertising,
1: what's the call for this year?
5: I think uh, the sentiment is too negative talking about, you know, tech being under-owned. Uh, the pocket that has done the worst is digital ad companies, and Meta has been a cost-cutting story so far, but I think there will be a cyclical rebound at some point with digital ads, and it's more likely given what we are seeing you know in terms of the overall sentiment that these companies have hit trough valuations and now it's about just you know sequential increase in top line
1: well meta just picking that stock it's kind of the poster child for digital advertising still down 20 percent on a trial 12 month basis that's the bad news the good news is It's up 47% this year in 2023, so maybe some of the buyers coming into this name on a longer-term basis. All right, good stuff. Tech roundtable kicking off uh, this two-hour segment with Dan Ives, Senior Equity Analyst uh, at Wedbush Securities, wearing the uh, casual wear very well today in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Plus, Mandeep Singh, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Tech Analyst. We like getting these guys together. They know what they're talking about. Uh, We like the roundtable. All things tech. We're going to have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Good morning. we had some pretty strong retail sales number the consumer is still out there so maybe the fed can Uh, you know maybe keep rates higher for longer that's kind of seems to be a little bit of a bet out there Robert Teeter, head of investment policy and strategy group at Silvercrest Asset Management joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio so Robert busy time for you professionals out there we've got lots of earnings uh, to deal with we've got lots of eco data CPI yesterday retail sales today when you put it all together what are you telling your clients these days
6: I think we're sort of sorting through a matrix here of on the economy side, are are things getting better or worse? And things seem to be getting a little bit better. And on the inflation side, which is a critical influence for valuation, uh, things seem to be slowing a bit in terms of their improvement, but also getting better. And so I think that the back and forth here is largely between the interaction between those two. And assessing whether this, this good news that you get on the economy side, how bad is that for inflation? Right now, I don't think it's too bad. But you see some of the reaction that we had yesterday to the CPI data, the reaction today to strong retail sales. I think that tells me we're going to be in a bit of a tug of war here as we continue to fight through these two issues.
3: Well, doesn't the Fed have to raise rates further? I mean, I got a great message um, Yesterday, who Neil Dutta sent me a message saying, like, what does the Fed have to show for 475 basis points of rate <laughs> hikes? I mean, stocks are down, what, 15% from their highs? So that's, that's one thing, I guess. But um, unemployment's at 3.4%, right? We're all spending like crazy. Airbnb has, they say, bookings are up 20%. After yep. last month, they were up 20%. I mean, that's just a sign of what's going on out
6: there. It, it sure is, and I do think it indicates that the Fed will, will certainly continue to increase, I think, in 25 basis point increments, maybe another 50 or 75 in total, and stay there for a long time. I have a little bit of a contrarian take on the economic side of things in that I feel that, that each month that the economy uh, stays robust, it's more time for inflation to come down. So while all those things that you stated are true, the Fed hasn't made progress in financial conditions, hasn't made progress in uh, you know softening the labor market, but there has been progress in inflation, and I think so long as that continues... With Without the economy falling apart, we have a chance for a pretty good outcome.
1: All right, we're about, I don't know, 80% away through this earnings season. Um, what are your takeaways?
6: Yeah, I think there have been a lot of strong signals from earnings season. So while earnings haven't been that exciting, um, under the surface, there have been some pockets of strength. And I think the strength has coincided with the message we're hearing from the economy. So consumer discretionary has clearly been a strong source of earnings. You've heard from the banks in terms of the consumer remaining resilient. I think that's encouraging. And we've seen some strength in the industrial space as well. And I think that plays into a couple of themes that are unfolding right now, you know, first and foremost, among those reshoring. And so I think there are some pockets of remaining strength in the economy. I think you have to be very careful in terms of Earnings that top line number might not be too exciting, but there are some areas to find uh, good earnings growth. It's interesting.
1: I'm just looking at the EA function uh, that Matt uh, hooked me up with a while ago, uh, and for the S&P 500 again, we're about the uh, 370 added that 500 companies in the S&P 500 have reported 5.3% sales growth year over year, but earnings declined by 2.4%. So there's that margin pressure.
6: It certainly is some margin pressure. And I think uh, coming back a bit to normal. So you know, my mapping of it is to say margins get back to where they were in 2019, which says there's still a little bit of downside pressure on margins. I think revenues will continue to remain strong in those areas that I mentioned. And so it does paint a picture of you know basically flat earnings growth in terms of outlook for this year, but with some opportunities below the surface. Wait, flat?
3: So 2023 S&P earnings flat from 2022, that's better than a stick in the eye, right? I think it is. I, I really do. I think there's there are a lot of transformations going on.
6: And so whether it's this theme of a, you know, a rolling recession, or I prefer to think of it as different parts of the economy in different parts of the economic cycle, there are these areas that are continuing to produce strong earnings growth. It's just not enough to boost the overall level. Consumer discretionary industrials are pretty small relative to tech and financials.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at energy just again on this EA function uh, earnings uh, revenue. Fifteen percent year over year, uh, earnings up sixty seven percent year over year. So, I'm, I, you know, it kind of goes to the question: Boy, energy's been good for the first time in a long time over the last couple of years. Have I missed it totally? Should I just go back into my, you know, two year Treasury yield at four point six percent?
6: Yeah, it's it's an interesting question to ponder. I mean, I don't think that the upside uh, is is going to be what it was in the past. But yeah. I think if you look through. Uh, all those those sectors on there, and I love the EA function as well, Uh, the areas that have had strength, all indications are that they will continue to have strength. So the key question is just valuation. And in my view, the the overall valuation on the market will be influenced a lot more by the interest rate and inflation picture, which I see improving. So to answer your question, I do think there's
3: still some opportunity uh, in energy as well as those other areas that are showing earnings growth. What do you think about other regions? I mean, we focus on the U.S. obviously because we're here, but Um, There could be, you know, something we're missing out on overseas EM was very popular at the beginning of the year Everyone said, oh, Europe's going to avoid this recession How does it look to you now? I think all of those have been an, an interesting sort of one-time
6: trade that maybe has a little bit of, of, of legs left to it in terms of evaluation disparity against the U.S. and that recovery in Europe, the reopening of China playing into EM. So I do think there's a, still a bit of opportunity there. But longer term, when we step back and, and look at the demographic picture, when we look at the productivity picture, with we look at where companies are locating that are producing growth, most of
3: those opportunities are in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it, we were talking about the EA function, so I noticed obviously there's a yellow drop down box you can mm-hmm. choose your index i put in the stock 600 instead of the s&p 500 and it's dramatically different. Um, in, well, look, it's the same trend, but stronger. So sales growth is like super boosted, up 12%, and earnings, the declines are only 1.5%. So I guess that's really kind of a reopening story for Europe as well. I think it is. I think both Europe and Asia are a little bit behind
6: the U.S. in terms of the reopening cycle, the reopening cycle from, from the economy. So, again, there may be a little bit more opportunity there, but longer term, the demographic picture and productivity in the U.S. just looks a lot stronger. By
3: the way, are you worried, uh, coming back, home Um, about the housing situation here, because we really haven't had um, uh, any serious injuries from raised rates so far, right? 6%, 7% mortgage rates make uh, affordability kind of off the charts, so anybody who wanted to sell is going to maybe rent instead, and anybody who wanted to buy, um, same goes for them. But if we start to see job losses, we could start to see forced sales and then big price drops. That's, that's a great
6: area of focus for us. I think we're not in the danger zone yet, but we could be if these rates continue to remain high towards the end of the year and if we don't see progress on inflation by the end of the year. For now, you have a situation where a lot of people uh, who, who bought homes are, are still uh, in very good shape. They bought them you know, two, three years ago before the move higher in prices. And you have a slowdown in activity, of course. We saw a few green shoots in housing earlier in the year when rates cooled a bit. So we think there's a the potential for that to happen again as we get later into the year more progress on inflation. Well, I'm looking. I'm about
1: to close on a property, uh, and I'm paying a much higher mortgage rate than I would like, or I would have paid a year ago. But I fully expect to refinance in twelve months, so hopefully that still works out. Because I look, you know, I'm trying to get Tom Keane out of the triple leverage all cash fund, and I'm saying, hey, you can go buy a two year note and get four point six percent. How are you guys thinking about? It? fixed income in 2023 after just a brutal 2022?
6: Yeah, I think there are some good opportunities in fixed income and you don't have to be too aggressive on the duration or credit front to pick up pretty good returns. So that's an area where we've been uh, constructive and encouraging clients to, to not go into all cash, but rather to go out a little bit, uh, not be long duration. You don't have to be to get good returns and not take a lot of excessive credit risk. There's no reason to. And it, it plays a much more constructive role in a portfolio than it did three years
3: ago. See? Yeah, no, I've this is what we've been hearing, uh, and it makes sense to me for sure. Um, I just wonder, it doesn't really help financial conditions if I'm getting 4.6% on my two-year, right? So the Fed, I think, is going to be the variable that could blow down this house of cards because they, they either have to keep raising or we have to all wait through, what, a, another year of Another two years of inflation that's just unacceptably high. I mean, we have the smartest people in the world coming out now suggesting they raise the target. And I'm thinking, wait, this is not good. 2% is already too much inflation, so 3% is worse. Yes, I,
6: I think that's right. I, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to raise the target. I think you hit on the key theme, though. We, we do have to be patient. I don't think inflation is coming down quickly. Um, but as long as it's heading in the right direction, I think it gives people a lot of encouragement in terms of planning for businesses or planning as consumers. While the problem is is getting better, that's much more important. And the pace, I agree with you, it may take a while. And so we may be looking at a situation where we're getting out towards the end of the year, and we're still not uh, near the 2% target that the Fed has set. Although there are pockets within uh, the CPI construction where you do see those numbers coming down. A bit, And I think you've seen uh, Chair Powell starting to refer to some of the progress that's been made, and I think that's a good thing. I think that will continue through the year, but it will take some patience to get there.
1: Just about 30 seconds. How much more earnings risk do you think is still out there in terms of estimates?
6: Yeah, it's, it's, it's another area of focus for us as well. I do think the pressure is there on the margin side. Uh, I've been a little bit less focused on that top-line number and willing to accept the sort of flat outcome with a recognition that there will be some big positive and negative numbers beneath the surface there. One theme that we heard throughout the earnings season was companies really focused on efficiency. So whether that's being careful with regard to labor costs or continuing to deploy technology, uh, efficiencies are there. So companies might manage a bit better than expected on margins.
1: All right, good stuff. Uh, as always, Robert Teeter, head of Investment Policy and Strategy Group, at Silvercrest Asset Management. And I think you can see him on Bloomberg Television at 1.30 p.m. today with Kriti Gupta. So if you want more Robert Teeter and his good thoughts on the markets, that's where you can find it. Lots of earnings uh, already under the belt. We got some more to go here. But this market, as we've seen over the last couple of days, still focused pretty intently on the Federal Reserve, on inflation. We got the CPI print yesterday. We got some really strong retail sales today uh, let's check in with the professional who kind of looks at this stuff for a living Dryden Pence uh, chief uh, investment officer for Pence Capital Management uh, he is an army veteran so we thank Dryden for his army service there Dryden thanks so much for joining us here lots of eco data lots of earnings when you sift through it all what are some of your takeaways here as you look towards uh, you know 2023
7: well I think there's two there's there's two big things. The first one is no one told the consumer don't fight the Fed. Uh, when you look at, at retail sales and uh, coming up, we had just a good report today, and with employment strong, uh with uh with basically balance sheets in good shape you know consumers not necessarily slowing down and i think that that's that's beginning to put some pressure on the fed of what they're thinking about going forward with it with interest rates so i think that's a that's a big issue consumers still seem to be strong and they still can still out there buying
3: so how high do you think the fed has to go to get real traction on financial conditions
7: well, I, I think you're probably looking at, you know, for the longest of time, they're saying term, uh, terminal rates was, you know, maybe between 5 5.25. We think that that now may move out a little bit, uh, 5.25 to 5.50. But uh, you know, one of the things that people aren't quite paying attention to is lag effects. Uh, and, and where, you know, company the market, you know, Fed does something in two days, market adjusts in two hours. But consumers and businesses, it takes them weeks and months sometimes to adjust to so their changing capital cost. And so I think that we're underappreciating the fact that we, this last 150 basis points of hikes uh, really haven't worked their way into the market yet. Uh, and I think this is why at some point the Fed does need to pause, and the pause is going to be long because the consumers and businesses kind of have to catch up with the decisions the Fed wants them to make
1: give us a sense uh, Dryden, as you think here we see rates moving higher for a lot of folks that makes uh, fixed income much more attractive relative to the last you know decade and certainly relative to the last year when the performance was so terrible um, how do you think about fixed income what's your kind of your strategy there
7: well you know absolutely and i think that this is quite significant. You know, we went for decades where the market was the Tina market. There was, you know, there is no alternative. And now I think we're in what I call the baby market. Uh, and that stands for bonds are back, y'all. Um, <laughs> and, and, and and I think it's true when you can get, when you can get a two year north of 4% in treasury, I think that changes. It gives that gives really investors something that they really haven't had in in over a decade. And so it makes a much better alternative to, you know, what's going on in the market. And they have, you know, for a retail investor to be able to get uh, a two-year treasury north of four, it changes how they think about risk it changes how they think about long-term investing and i think that that's exceedingly important for advisors and and people pay attention to. yeah uh, we're getting back like i said bonds are back y'all and and we need to pay close attention to that
3: and we have a um, cross asset reporter katie greifeld she's coming on in about 10 minutes to talk to us about the fact that investors can earn more in cash than they can in the s&p right now and, and and everyone hates this rally um you know even people who are in it are saying this is just a bear market rally. It's going to falter. Um, what, what signs do you look for for that you know market pivot to happen?
7: Well, I, so there's a difference in the market pivot and pet pivot, Fed pivot.
3: True, pivot, true, so, true. I'm, I'm talking about the market. Like, what signs? Do you, we, we're up 15 percent from the October lows. You know, does that hold, or do we come back down?
7: I think we're ahead of ourselves. Uh, but I think one of the big things is you cannot discount human emotion. Everybody was so happy to see the end of 2022. It, it basically was a sea change. You kind of took off that jacket and put on the new one. So I think we saw this early rally, uh, more like a relief rally, if anything else. Uh, and so now we're going to have to look through the rest of this quarter for validation of that and also the realization that we made, you know, the, I think that the idea that a bad recession is coming uh, may be coming off the table, and that it looks like a little, small recession or or no recession. And we're kind of in that camp. Uh, but I think it's important to pay attention to. We haven't seen the last 150 basis points of hikes uh, really work its way through to business decisions yet. So I think that that's why we have to be a little cautious. So. Uh, I don't mind the rally, but uh, I, I think that we have to make sure that we're being cautious throughout this first and second quarter. Uh, but I don't see a research. Or I don't see a technical recession uh, occurring first or second quarter. You know, we get positive GDP growth. So you're not going to see if it happens. It's not happening in the third quarter. So it's pushed out.
1: Dryden, what are you doing with new capital coming into your firm here? Are you, how cautious are you being? How are you allocating it at, the, at this time?
7: Well, uh, first, the first thing we're doing is allocating the fixed income piece because we think that that's almost, uh, a, a no-brainer, right? Uh, and that we are looking at putting the fixed income to work in the, in the two-year, uh, and things with short of that. Cause if we get a pivot, you know, you're going to get it based on clipping a good coupon and some, and some uh, capital gains out here, you know, 24, 36 months. But then what we're really paying close attention to is the fact that, you know, on the, consumer side, you have a barbell consumer. So you have the luxury goods doing fine. You have the low end of the retail doing pretty good. Uh, It's in the middle we're staying away from. So you barbell the consumer. But then also we take a good close look at payments. Uh, You know, as inflation rises, tickets go up, right? But payments are are being able to maintain their margins. So companies that that are involved in payments uh, and travel and luxury spend, And we think also, I think defense is going to be, continue to be a good segment. I don't. I don't see the the war in the Ukraine uh, ending. Uh, I think there's going to be changes. But even if it do, even if it ended tomorrow, you have a tremendous amount. Of money that's got to go into defense because the NATO countries have learned their lesson and they're all committing to this two percent. Uh, you're going to have 19 countries instead of nine, and so they've got to replenish arsenals. So we think defense is a good play uh, for a couple of years. Solid earnings.
3: Uh, Geopolitics at all a worry? I mean, especially with um, you know Chinese relations, U.S.-China relations um, getting more and more sour every day.
7: It it, it creates. Moments of volatility, um, but you know, the thing, a bad thing—hurts China more than it hurts anything else. Anybody else, they—they uh, they need a strong economy to keep their people uh, in place. Uh, and so, I think there's there's risks that people aren't fully appreciating on the China thing. But the geopolitical situation—I think the whole world's watching Russia, uh, and they're going to watch what happens over the next several weeks if Russia tries to have a offensive. Uh, to break out of their defensive perimeter, yep. but you, you know, when I think of what the world is learning, is that uh, you know, right. uh, a Ukrainian you know missile costs you know you can take out a tank for one hundred and seventy five thousand, right? Costs the Russian three point two to build it. So
1: All right, Dryden, like great that. stuff. All right, Dryden, Dryden Pence, CIO of Pence Capital Management. Dryden is a Army veteran, so we thank him for his service. Just getting some thoughts on these markets. We're gonna have more coming up. This is
5: Bloomberg.
1: I want to move to another sector that I really love because um, I like to eat out, and that's restaurants. And when you want to talk restaurants and all that kind of stuff, um, like Cracker Barrel is one of my faves. And, and, I don't know and, if you're, you should say that publicly. Oh, I love Cracker Barrel, the country you could boy get breakfast. Canceled. <laughs> I could get canceled. I love it. Mike Halen, he does this stuff for a living. He's a senior restaurants analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Mike, we're going to get to the broader call on restaurants uh, coming up but first i want to start off with subway i always thought this was public but it's a private company and it's rumored that it might be sold here talk to us about what's going on with subway what do you know
8: yeah unfortunately like you said uh it's private so uh you know i've been digging for information the last couple of days and some of the some of the data points like same store sales and and it's hard to find any bad ones right it's only they only report the good ones um, but yeah, from, from what I understand, um, you know, they're looking to sell. Uh, I don't know if the timing is so great with, with the ri- rise in interest rates over the last year. Um, but you know, from what we're hearing, they're looking to sell and, and they think they can get about 10 billion for it.
3: So who picks them up?
8: I think it's gotta be PE. Uh, I think it's gotta be private equity. So, um, there's two big multi-unit operators in, in our space, um, you know, um, uh, Restaurant Brands and, and Yum, I don't see either one of those making a play for it. Um, Restaurant Brands uh, is, is really focused on um, turning around Tim Hortons uh, in Canada, which, which they've made some progress there, and also Burger King in the United States, which is going to be a pretty heavy lift. They're investing $400 million over the next two years uh, in their alongside their franchisees to help Uh, boost results there uh so i think they have their hands full yum brands the other one um uh you know yum brands right now is 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 doing really well right um and so that's a name that comes up but they're they're trading at five times leverage that's their long-term target you know tacking on 10 billion to that balance sheet is is going to shoot their their leverage ratio up pretty significantly uh I don't know if, if I, I think it's just kind of a too big of a pill to swallow for them.
3: All right. Right. Um, so PE picks it up. And then, by the way, it's not as interesting to us anymore, right? If, what? If PE takes it.
1: Well, I like to see what they pay for it, valuation, that kind of stuff. As, as an that's analyst, a, you want to see what kind of valuation that's are. a good point. It's but, good mark but
3: Mike, what are the publicly traded uh, companies that you like? Paul and I went to uh, Chipotle the other day. Yeah. And. The line was. I think it may have gone out the door at yep. one point when yep. we were in there, um, and it's a long store, so a lot of people they just don't have enough employees to meet demand. Yeah, they're they're still they're still
8: cranking. Um, yeah, they're still cranking, and you know it's a market by market thing. You know they they reported earnings recently, and I think ninety percent of their stores or so are are, are fully staffed. So so it kind of depends on the market.
3: Um, Love their you know, stock chart. It? it just goes up and to the right. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> impressive.
8: Yeah, it's been a good run. Uh, fourth quarter, though, was, you know, we saw some chinks in the armor, right? Um, you know, their their uh, garlic, garlic guajillo steak uh, limited-time offer did not do as well as brisket the year prior. Uh, traffic dropped about 4% year over year. Uh, you know, same-store sales came in lighter than expected. So, you know we're not really you know the jury's not out yet but there could be some minor pushback here with some of the low and middle income consumers uh over there with the with the aggressive price increases we've seen there so they've they increased prices probably more than any of the other chains that we covered over the last two years um you know and they're three-year same-source sales even though the trend decelerated by 550 basis points in the quarter. Uh, it's still one of the strongest uh, performers post-pandemic um, in our in coverage universe, if not the the strongest. We'll see how the rest of uh, earnings pans out. So, listen, there's a lot of really good things going on over there. But, you know, we're really curious. To As see- opposed
3: to uh, ye. Cracker Barrel Old Country. <laughs> that stock chart is a disaster. As much as Paul loves the Country Boy Breakfast, um, you're not making any money on this one.
8: Well, so, so it's been tough. Um, you know, they, they have a high percentage of, of uh, older customers, right? People that um, are retired and are pulling back on their spending, people that might be a little more afraid of COVID uh, over the last couple of years. So less likely to go into the restaurant, uh, family dining in general has been pressured more than pretty much any of, of the, you know, subcategories in the restaurant industry. So yeah, it's been, that's been a, a particularly difficult place to play for sure.
3: Most of their customers aren't taking the PJ from Aruba to Vail.
1: Uh, probably not. <laughs> so anyway, but Mike, I was out of Vail last week and a lot of the restaurants, they were only seating maybe two thirds or three quarters of the table because they still don't have staff. So I that still seems to be an issue. But I would love to get your call here. What are you telling clients about the restaurant space here in twenty twenty three? How do we play it?
8: Sure. So uh well it looks like you know, Vail needs an influx of ski bums.
1: Um, yes, it exactly. Sounds like. It sounds like to me, maybe
8: the maybe the uh, lift ticket's just gotten too expensive. Two hundred and forty uh, large. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of money. I just bought one for Park City. Uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely not cheap. Um, so yeah, you know, January, December was pretty bad, which was surprising. December sales were bad, which was a surprising because we were lapping some Omicron impact and they've had a nice rebound here in January. Uh, but we think it's going to be short lived, right? Cause we're lapping that Omicron outbreak last year. And so in mid February or so, well, that, that tailwind is going to start to go away. You know, and we just think that all of the aggressive um, price increases, right, to combat inflation and all the other inflationary aspects um, that are are hurting consumer wallets, we think it's eventually going to take their toll in the restaurant space. So, um, you know, we think quick service, franchise, heavily franchise chains, chains with scale. So think, you know, McDonald's, think of Domino's. We think those chains will, will outperform. Right. Uh, this year, right? right? And it's the uh, the casual dining chains that own a lot of their restaurants have a lot of operating leverage in their model, right? You know, if they they see some pressure on the sales line, it's going to all right uh, continue to squeeze their margins.
1: All right, Mike. Great stuff as always, Mike Hayden, senior restaurant analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. This is Bloomberg. Lots of earnings data out there. Lots of eco data out there. CPI yesterday. Retail sales jobs i need a professional to give me some perspective here and that's why we call on gina martin adams she's the chief equity strategist for bloomberg intelligence so gina you do this for a living you've been doing it for decades how do you put it all together and make a coherent call for 2023
2: yeah i think that's a great question because we are in very unique times you know i think We first need to acknowledge the fact that even though um, people such as myself and and, uh, you guys there have been in this market for decades, we've been in the market in the decades of experience of decelerating CPI, we've never experienced inflation to the degree we experienced inflation in uh, 2022, and that inflation spike has serious consequences for investment strategies going forward. I do think uh, it's really important, most important, though, to keep your eye on the earnings stream and what's happening in earnings and the expectations for earnings over the course of this year will most likely drive stock prices. It's no coincidence that stock prices struggled last year as earnings came off of their peak. Uh, We've now discovered, you know, over the course of the last several months that earnings did indeed peak at the end of 2021, which does help explain the market's weakness throughout 2022. Even though the economy appears to be rather stable, inflation is the biggest reason for that earnings peak. We saw inflation spike last year. It created a crunch in margins. The inflation deceleration is absolutely essential in 2023 in order to create a margin bottom. So what do you expect
3: in terms of S&P earnings this year, Gina? We had uh, Robert Teeter on from Silvercrest Asset Management who said he thinks earnings are going to be flat uh, 23 on 22.
2: Yeah, the first question I have to ask back is which version of earnings, because I think this is incredibly important right now, and it's really missing from the discussion. Operating earnings or sort of adjusted consensus comparable earnings are what most strategists and most analysts forecast, and on, a, on an adjusted basis, we too expect a very modest decline. We expect something close to 2 to 5% ultimately. Um, a I lot of that will depend, though, on how much energy drops. If you look at adjusted EPS, adjusted EPS is already down 7% from its peak and likely falls another closer to 7%. So which EPS is also very important Um, because when you're only looking at consensus comparable EPS numbers over the last year, you would have thought earnings were still rising.
3: Well, what, what do I have on EA? When, when I pull up EA and I look at sales growth of 5.3%, earnings growth negative 2.4%, what are we looking at? Just earnings per share? Oh, that's, that's adjusted. That's an
2: adjusted number. Mm-hmm. It's that's Bloomberg. now an adjusted that's number. Deep. So what we're doing, and I think this is really important, is you've you've got to keep track of which version of earnings you're looking at because if you're looking at adjusted versus unadjusted earnings, you also get a very different perspective on where valuations are. And I, I think this is the struggle right now, Is and it is always a struggle at major cyclical turning points in the market. Companies do have major write-offs. Let's think about just one example, Rivian and Amazon. You get a completely different perspective of Amazon's earnings when you think about the Rivian write-off than when you look at a consensus comparable operating earnings number for Amazon. The result is uh, really incredible distortions in valuations as well, which makes this point in the in the market cycle really difficult for investors, really adds to the complexity.
1: So where do we go here, uh, Gina? I mean, how should I think about these markets? I've got you know, markets are still down you know, double digits from the high, but boy, they're up 13%, 14 15% off the lows at October low. I don't know where to go here. What are you telling investors? Yeah.
2: Yeah, in our view was at the October low, we had priced a pretty significant earnings recession. We'd gone through in our fair value models at that point in time. We wrote that the market was already anticipating somewhere between a five and 15% contraction in earnings, depending upon where your bogey for fed funds rate is. So we had already gone through a process of pricing and a fairly significant downdraft coming. We're now experiencing that downdraft in the earnings stream on an adjusted basis. Um, and we'll continue to experience that in the early part of 2023. That said, the rally that we've ex- we've had in the market since the October lows does look to be a bit overdone uh, in our view. In particular, the leadership in the rally is very suspicious. If we're moving into a climate where economic growth is somewhat stable, inflation is decelerating, but nonetheless a little too sticky, and the Fed has to keep policy rates higher, Uh, leadership in large cap growth is very suspicious and subject to correction. So I think you've got a lot of potential movement beneath that top line as the market looks a little bit overbought in the short run. mm, Some of the mm. excess inflation of the October to January period probably needs to blow off.
3: So we look at uh, the S&P broken down into 11 industry groups. Year to date, the leader's to your point, Gina, are consumer discretionary stocks and then yeah. IT, so tech stocks. Does that mean to you that, um, you know, investors are just so thrilled that 2022 is over and they're just buying the worst performers uh-huh. of, 20, of 2022 this year? Or are they, did they do tax loss harvesting at the end of last year? Now they're getting back into those since they got the write-off. Are they, um, were they shorting these stocks? And this is now a short covering rally.
2: Yeah. I I think it's a combination of all three of those. Those are all excellent points and certainly all part of the explanation for why stocks have rallied since October, but not all of it, right? I mean, some of the rally since October is probably going to continue to stick because consumer discretionary, as an example, not all of consumer discretionary is large cap growth. Sure, you've got the Amazon and Tesla's of the world, but then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got some pretty tremendous value opportunities that emerged in consumer discretionary and some hypercyclical industries that tend to perform very well in an environment where the economy is moving into recovery from recession. So I, I think there's some opportunities there. Very similarly with tech, you've got a combination of big cap defensive growth and value segments like the, the semiconductor space where, you know, uh, expectations were completely obliterated and are now starting to recover a little bit in anticipation of a cycle emerging. So, you know, I think you've really even got to go beneath the sector level, right down to the industry level and even the stock level at this point in the cycle to look for where you see those deeper values, where you see sort of less exposure to interest rate risk going forward, where uh, recession in the earnings stream has largely been priced. Those are the opportunities that we're looking for to um, emerge as winners over the course of 2023.
1: Gina, not that you don't have enough on your plate right now, but I'm going to ask you to help us book our show over the next couple of days. Should we book a small cap portfolio manager, small cap something to take a look at?
2: Yeah, we absolutely think small caps are something to take a look at. You know, the small cap bear market is much longer in duration than the large cap bear market. So deep value has emerged in the small cap space. You're looking at a group that trades roughly one and a half, nearly two standard deviations below large cap valuation multiples and has been in a bear market since March of 2021. Small caps also have been in a bottoming process for longer. Remember, the October lower lows in the S&P 500 were not confirmed by small caps, which made their lowest low in June um, and have been sort of waffling around and, and trying to get a little bit of a lift, but not a tremendous amount of love. And underloved spaces are always the spaces where we want to dig for for some diamonds um, in the rough. I think that small caps do present a really strong opportunity Provided we all we have indeed priced that recession and we're moving into some form of recovery here in the short term.
3: It's so confusing to me, um, may, probably because we don't focus on it as much. But you've also got choices to make in small caps. Do you go with the Russell two thousand? Do you go with the S and P six hundred? There's uh, Jess Menton has a story on all these crazy technical indicators like the momentum uh, indicator, the uh, moving average convergence divergence, which sounds like it's just (laughs) made up. Um, And I just don't know um, where to go when I look at small caps.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point. But even the um, small cap benchmark manager really looks at only the top Segment of small cap, the small cap Russell two thousand index. So for the most part, you're looking at the S and P six hundred as your most investable opportunities within small caps. Yep. Maybe you extend that to, uh, you know, the top a thousand to fifteen hundred of the Russell two thousand. Mm. There are some signals in the small cap index. Uh, you know, Jeff works closely with our str- uh, small cap strategist, Mike Casper, to derive those uh, comments uh, to derive that commentary on the MACD and the MACD has given us a signal that small caps may be running out of steam Hmm. with a negative crossover in positive territory. That's a lot of gobbledygook, (laughs) but what it basically (laughs) means is we probably have reached some sort of short-term top in small caps. That doesn't mean that opportunities are still there.
1: Paul. Paul, the
3: moving average convergence, divergence shows a negative aspect in positive territory. Oh, sure. Am I
1: buying that or am I selling it? Gina Martin Adams, she covers uh, all things on the
3: strategy side for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at Matt Miller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
1: Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly
2: to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move.